Hi everyone and welcome to the People and Place podcast by WSP. My name is Dr Mark Maund and I'm WSP's Planning and Approvals Team Lead for Regional New South Wales and ACT. This year on the People and Place podcast, we are introducing a mini-series titled Planning for Natural Hazards. I'll be speaking with some brilliant specialists around Australia who can contribute to the conversation around planning for natural hazards and a better future. Before we begin, I would like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where our projects take place throughout Australia and their continuing connection to culture, community, land, sea and sky. We pay our respect to elders, past, present and future. Now today I'm very pleased to be joined by Bernadette Quirk. Hi Mark, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm Bernadette. I am a graduate in the planning and approvals team in the Newcastle office and I've been with WSP for just about 12 months. And it's great to have you here. And the reason for talking to you today is because you're an emerging professional and we're really interested in understanding your experience and what you believe are opportunities in terms of dealing with natural hazards. Let's get into it. One of the first items I'd really like to talk to you about is the changing weather patterns and the extreme weather events that we're dealing with. Some of my experience in working across Australia is that people have noticed those changing weather patterns, different rainfall patterns and how those have affected the way they live. And for instance, I was working in Tasmania a number of years ago and people would tell me that the winters weren't as harsh as they used to be and definitely the snow patterns were different. I know you've come from a regional area, so it would be good to talk about some of those regional issues and the weather patterns you've noticed and how the people have tried to manage dealing with those. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I grew up in a small country town called Moree in northwestern New South Wales. It's got a population of about 10,000 people. Growing up in Moree, I saw firsthand the impacts of climate change and natural hazards on the town and the impacts it has on livelihoods and communities. Moree is a floodplain district, which is why it's such a rich agricultural area, but we've had changes in the dry and the wet parts of the season. We've always had significant flooding about every 10 years, but the drier periods are getting drier and the wetter periods seem to be getting wetter. I lived at home during the 2011 and 2012 floods and saw firsthand the impacts of that on our communities and particularly the agricultural side of the community. And that actually came off the back of what's called the millennium drought. So that began in the late 1990s and persisted through until La Nina came back in that 2011 period. Since then, we've had another brutal run of record-breaking dry spells and then waiting long periods for that rainfall. So we had a pretty promising winter and spring in 2016, and then that started to dry up by 2017, which led into the 2017 to 2019 drought, which was absolutely awful for our part of the world. The bomb recorded three years from January 2017, to the end of 2019 as the driest period on record for any 36-month period over the Murray-Darling Basin area. And it goes without saying that that was when we had those awful 2019 bushfires along the East Coast as well. So there was a lot lot happening then. And then relating to things like drought are the heat waves. So in terms of Moree, in the summer of 2017, we broke the record for the number of consecutive days over 35 degrees. We reached 51 days of over 35 degrees, which is, I'm sure you can imagine, almost insufferable for a lot of industries and then all the things that come with that, you know, communities, people, animals, vegetation. And then we had floods again in 2021, 2022. So yeah, it's that cycle, you know, like it begins again. I agree. So we've all noticed those changes. 
I know in terms of that extended drought leading up to the 2019 bushfires, the emergency services, particularly the fire services, knew that there were really severe potential bushfire seasons coming. Even though they knew those seasons were coming, even though they prepared, we all saw how challenging that was during those 2019, 2020 bushfires. Houses were lost. Unfortunately, people died. People working in emergency services were injured and killed. They were quite severe events. And this is knowing that these events were happening and pre-planning for a lot of these issues. So even in preparation for disasters that we know are coming, it's increasingly challenging for people to be prepared. And in terms of floods, obviously, it's very typical for Australia that following droughts, we get floods. So again, even though we knew that these floods were coming or likely to come, the significance of the floods and the impact in terms of where they impacted the community, the number of houses and people that were impacted, again, was quite severe. We saw the challenges and the uh, difficulties of a lot of the emergency services in attending to those floods and being prepared and really having to shift from one disaster, which was bushfire, into a different disaster with very similar challenges, which was flooding. So different equipment, different training, different people, different locations often in many situations, but really dealing with some quite challenged communities that are sadly in some cases had just recovered from bushfires and now had to deal with floods and are still dealing with those floods. One of the other issues which I find really interesting is the changing in rural environments then impacts the the type of crops we can grow and where we can grow those crops. So food security and food scarcity is a really big issue across the globe. And it's something that we've seen impacted recently with the difficulties in the Ukraine. And it happens in Australia as well, where there's a disruption to the supply chains, there's changing weather patterns, there's places where we can no longer grow certain crops where we used to. And those issues on food supply and food security are really challenging. One of the things that rural environments really need to deal with is long-term access to water and water security. And many of these issues now are feeding into the urban environment as well. We saw during that millennial drought, we saw the low water levels in terms of number of the dams in urban areas and even water restrictions being put in place for those reasons. So these issues are affecting us across urban and rural environments. And that, I think, highlights the really the importance that we all should identify and pose to dealing with these hazards and the fact that it does affect us all across the globe and across Australia. I know in western parts of New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria and also in parts of Western Australia and the Northern Territory as well, the increasing temperatures have created different ways that people adapt to those. In some situations, they're actually looking at building refuges in urban areas, which are really just cooled areas with air conditioning, shading, for people to actually refuge and recover from some of these heat waves. And it's really interesting that our urban environments are changing to adapt to these issues as well. So we're actually trying to plan for some of these, you know, these heat waves that are coming through and also the health impacts that some of those heat waves can have. I'm not sure what they've been doing in rural areas, but maybe you've got some experience in that. I think this is, it's like everything. Sometimes it takes catastrophic events to force social change and and any level of change. So I think that has been one takeaway is after the awful seasons we had in 2019, people didn't have harvest, grain harvest for years. It began a extended period of time when people were hand feeding stock and culling stock that they would never have dreamed of doing that, which is awful, absolutely awful. But off the back of that, I think there have been some good changes that there are people that have realised, you know, there's this whole movement that's come from that period of an awful low, the Farmers for Climate Action groups that have come out of that. Yeah, there's always room for change. And I think that that's, that's been something really good is that people are recognising that this does have real life impacts and it is, it is on their livelihoods. It doesn't matter if that's how 
granddad did it and dad did it and generations and generations that you need to look at the method of how we farm, how we, what we rely on, our industries, where we get our resources from, what fills that void when we don't have resources. Because like you said, yeah, what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment is a big part of like global wheat supply. But when we, when our domestic crops and livestock fall, we all end up wearing the cost. Our everyday grocery bills go up. People lose jobs. Towns cannot keep functioning. So I think Yeah, I think that's been one good thing from my perspective at least is that in the last decade, certainly the changes I've seen even in Maureen and surrounds is that people recognise that there are everyday impacts and their livelihoods are at threat if they don't diversify and change agricultural practices. And yeah, there's a massive movement for things like regenerative agriculture and planning for natural hazards and food security because it's needed now more than ever. Population's growing. Excellent. One of the great things that has come out of trying to deal with disasters as they occur and post-disaster is really the communities coming together and trying to solve a lot of these challenges. So there's been a lot of support for each other during these disasters and hopefully support for emergency services as well while they're responding. And also the recovery and post-recovery phases are really important where the communities work together. Moving into the urban environments, as we know, many people in Australia live in coastal environments and issues like coastal hazards, coastal erosion, sea level rise, they're issues that we're really dealing with as well at the moment. And what I've found that that puts pressure on is individuals in terms of where they live and protecting their own homes, but also how we set out our uh, cities and towns. Because we have so much development within these coastal areas, it's really important that we manage things like floods, we manage things like coastal erosion, and we consider the impact of our development on those areas and how those areas impact on us. So some of the ways we can deal with things like this are where we build and where we develop. Also working for an engineering and environmental company, so some of the stormwater systems that we build, some of the infrastructure, roads, they really feed into a lot of these challenges that we deal with. Obviously, roads help with access and egress for emergency services. Stormwater is self-evident. Appropriate stormwater deals with flooding issues. But we also work really hard to incorporate the environment into a lot of what we do. So where possible, and I know this is a role that you're involved with, Bernadette, is trying to protect, enhance a lot of the environmental areas, such as mangroves, riparian areas, these coastal environmentally sensitive areas that also support and help reduce the impact of a lot of natural hazards. So maybe you could give us an example of where you've done some of that sort of work in your recent times. Yeah, I'm really excited to be working on a lot of different projects here at WSP in the planning and approval space. But most recently, I've been added onto a few renewables projects and I know that we've increased our capacity for renewables in our New South Wales team. I've worked on a few road projects and have a real appreciation for all of the different environmental constraints that you work with. I've got one particular project where it's near coastal wetlands and having to not only assess all of that and environmental impact, but design out the potential impacts to that very sensitive space because that is, as we know now, so, so important to protecting so much of our coastline. And then, yeah, linking into that in the design is the long-term feasibility of it. It's an important piece of infrastructure for evacuation, access for emergency services, so we have to factor that in. We know now that just building and hoping, it doesn't work like that. We do so much modelling and assessment to make sure these things are right for that reason. 
Moving into renewables, our team are currently working on a project relating to pumped hydro. We've also recently won a wind farm project. Uh, I'm very excited to be a part of that and I think all of our teams are really keen to get involved with that because that will really diversify our projects and I think it's so important. WSP, we, we pride ourselves on the fact that we understand and and want to plan for climate change and that's a big part of it is that moving to renewables we know these things so yeah I really look forward to the wind farm proposal actually and I think it will be really interesting and I'm keen to see all the specialist studies that come with that because I think that will be a really good win Another great win we've had locally is the feasibility studies and planning work we've done for a green hydrogen hub in the port of Newcastle. So that's exciting new technology and an industry that the port of Newcastle can diversify out of coal operations in Newcastle and more broadly in Hunter Valley. And it means a lot working on local projects. And we've also put in for some offshore wind projects. I'm very excited to be involved in the shift to renewables. I think we know that that is the number one step we can take to move away from expediating climate change and reducing our impact. More broadly, I think it's important to me that our planning and approvals team and our specialist teams like Ecology have an important role in planning out impacts every day. So we we plan to preserve areas of important habitat and populations or species and this reduces the pressures that they feel from climate change. So I think that's important to me in my everyday role knowing that it has a practical application to preserve some of these very important areas. Relating to all of this is I think it's really important WSP has a future ready program and it's something that we factor into we in all of our projects we want to be future ready. So it's based on three ideas. One, we see the future more clearly. Two, we design for today, so we want to design into the future we see today. And three, that we lead in innovation. And it's based on four pillars: climate, society, resources and technology. WSP future ready concepts they like evolve into our business and it means that we stay up to date on the most important trends that impact the built environment and then throughout our projects we plan and can understand and identify opportunities to provide action on those clear indicators of climate change and where we need to be prepared. Yeah, that's excellent, Bernadette. There's some really good points. And I think it's a really exciting time at the moment to be involved, especially as an emerging professional in a lot of what we do. So there's a really big push for renewables at the moment. As you said, we're working on wind farms, hydrogen, offshore wind farms. The other thing I wanted to have a talk to you about was the commitment to the Australian government as you're talking about the achieving net zero. So there's many ways we can look towards achieving net zero. There's different transport infrastructure. There's different ways we build. Obviously, the sustainability group that we have in WSP looking towards trying to help assist with net zero. It's really an all-encompassing kind of issue in how we capture what is net zero and how we move towards net zero. So for instance, we have our engineers who look at different uh, levels of carbon in the materials that they use in infrastructure. Net zero can mean a lot of things to many people. Obviously, it's around reducing emissions and trying to achieve zero carbon emissions. But as an emerging professional, I'd be interested to know what role you think really you can help or play in achieving net zero. I think particularly, and again, reaching back into this role, that's part of the reason I'm really excited to be at WSP is because for me personally, you're exactly right. The big scale development and the big players in the game are where you can make the most change and lead from the top. I think that's always the way if you can change the business model to realise that this is a new norm and that everything diversifies, everything changes. So for instance, in the Hunter Valley, coal was a big part of Newcastle and the Hunter Valley's history. That's fine. You always accept your past, but 
there has to be a change at some point. Just because things are the status quo doesn't mean they always have to stay that way. So in terms of, yeah, getting to that net zero, for me, I think it's everyday decisions that we make as an individual 100% make a difference. I think, you know, 22 million people change the way they live their life a little bit in their day-to-day lives. There's no doubt that that makes a difference. But I think that our big industries like agriculture, energy, all of those things are where we need to create the most change. And I hope that the federal government and again, state governments and, and even local jurisdictions actually build the frameworks to make the change and incentivizing that. Yeah, that's great. And that's really coming back to full circle. I guess as we try and achieve net zero, then that reduces the impact of natural hazards or the risk that natural hazards pose to our built and rural and urban environments. And really, if we can work towards achieving net zero, then ideally we help reduce the impact of those hazards. One of the other things that's really interesting in terms of hazards has been or will be where we can live in the future. So all of us are affected by hazards at different times. I know in the last three to four years, I've experienced bushfire, drought, flood and earthquake just um, from where I live. And so definitely it's been a significant impact for a lot of people. And we're really going to need to decide where and how we live, what our buildings will look like, what our infrastructure will look like, and where we locate that. I think that's one of the next challenges that really moves into emerging professionals is how will this look? How do we master plan our communities? And also dealing with legacy decisions up in Lismore, there are places that people currently live that potentially in the future may not be able to live. And I think that's one of the really big challenges. What is that going to look like and how are those decisions going to be made? And really the opportunity to influence those decisions, it's a great time now to do that. Unfortunately, it's a result of all the disasters that we've experienced. But I think the recognition that the disasters are increasing is there. It's really just the framework for how that looks. So as you said, from Commonwealth, state, local government, definitely we need that guidance. But really as professionals also, it's an opportunity to, to influence a lot of those decisions and, and how that can look. Be really interested to understand where to from here for you, what you think your role is in trying to help with you know, our cities and towns and how they're going to look and how we manage the risk of natural hazards going into the future. Yeah, like I was saying, you know, no one wants to think about these things and the catastrophic events, but like I said, they, they do drive the change we sometimes need to see. So being in that planning space and I understand that individuals are located where individuals are located, but I, in terms of these events, I don't think that necessarily it's as simplistic as saying, oh, these people just shouldn't live here. There needs to be some sort of escalation higher up that says, okay, we recognise that, like we said, things change. This was once a great and safe place to live and reliable, but things have changed and there's nothing wrong with that. That's particularly in our Australian climate. It's We have such level of variability that you never know what you're getting next and that's that's too big of an enemy for us to work against. And at the end of the day, that's everyday people whose lives and livelihoods and where the cost. So where to for here in the planning space? I think for me personally is that I really enjoy working in the planning space and I think having that everyday role in planning people's lives. So I think looking to how we centre, I mean, any of our urbanisation along the East Coast is an interesting thing at this point because we know that so much of our population lives along the East Coast and more and more that's going to be the centre of potential natural hazards and where the impacts of climate change. So, no, that's really interesting. So as, as you would know, the Royal Commission, Planning Institute of Australia, the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, 
They've all identified how important planning is in planning for communities. Obviously, that's the challenge for you coming through to, to work out what that looks like. Yeah, so of course, nationally, we've had the bushfires and the devastating flooding in northern New South Wales more recently. So there's just so much to it. And I think we do have to make sure our planning processes not only capture this, but are ahead of the devastation and strengthen our communities when we need them during those times. We definitely need guidance from governments, from a national policy really in how we address these issues is really important. And I think a decision-making framework is one thing that I also would really like to see in terms of how do we make decisions that consider natural hazards across all the things that we do to make sure that they're front and centre of our minds. And part of that is, of course, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also understanding that hazards and disasters are a natural part of where we live and how we function as a society and really trying to work within those systems as well. And as I'm sure you know, Bernadette, social cohesion is one of the really big things that we need to focus on to help people prepare for and recover from disasters. And I think we're well-placed to do that in terms of a lot of the work we do, which really is about building communities and helping them thrive in a lot of these situations. Yeah, absolutely. Communities need lots of things to function, and I think it's not always as black and white as buildings and roads. There is a need for so many other places and things that make a community thrive and just having a space and having something that looks right doesn't always mean that it's going to be able to provide adequately for a community but I think we I think we know that now and we know how to plan that into our communities and our spaces so I think that that's a really unique thing that's changing at the moment too in the planning space. And that's really interesting Bernadette thanks for having the chat with us today I've really enjoyed the time. Thanks Mark thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in the work we're doing, please get in touch. Our links will be in the podcast show notes. Goodbye.